going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. As I've been doing each of these weeks when we've been looking at these Beatitudes, I'm going to read the setting and read the Beatitude that we will look at this morning. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1, we read that seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and down to verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This morning, the task before us is to understand this statement, to understand the meaning of the sixth of the seven Beatitudes that, we're going to be, that we have been looking at and will continue to look at in the final one next week. These Beatitudes that describe the characteristics of the members or the citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, as we endeavor to understand meaning of Bible passages, increasingly, I'm convinced that the key to the understanding of any beatitude or any commandment or any statement in Scripture, any passage in the Bible, is to be ever-growing and ever-seeking a deeper understanding of the totality of the biblical witness. It's my conviction that it's our lack of comprehending the totality of the Bible story that becomes the greatest of our hindrances to clearly, accurately, and faithfully teaching and studying the word of the living God. Because you see, our Lord Jesus does not speak these words of the Sermon on the Mount as if he came, he did come from heaven, indeed he did, but he came to his own he came to Israel. He came to a people to whom God had already spoken the words of the law and the prophets. And his ministry in Israel was not detached from that. Remember, Jesus said, you, 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 you search the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. He tells them that the Bible is all about him. And how did he learn that? Well, he studied the Bible. He saw the reality of his father and of God's purpose and his place in the whole story of God's salvation. And he can declare that. These are they that testify of me. And everything along the way in his life he did, not to abolish the scriptures, not to tear down the whole edifice of the Old Testament teaching, but to say, these are they that find their fulfillment in me. In fact, if there is resurrection, he took these disciples apart and he, he said to them that uh, the, all the things in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms have been fulfilled in me. Jesus told them how to understand the Bible in the light of him. And we can't, don't understand Jesus, we don't understand his words, if we simply don't understand the prior revelation given by God to the nation of Israel. His life, his ministry, his teaching, it's all to complement and to complete the scriptures which testify of him. And so it's not just that we come to the third of these Beatitudes where it says the meek shall inherit the earth and say, ah, I think I remember something in the Old Testament that actually said that. Indeed, Psalm 37 actually says that. 
And we can say, well, Jesus quoted the Old Testament. He quoted Psalm 37. The meek shall inherit the earth. But you see, my point to you is, it's not just that beatitude. But it's all the beatitudes. They have their precedence. They have their antecedents. They have um, their rootage in something that is found in the Old Testament that does shed light upon the meaning of the New Testament text. And so as I did my preparation for this morning's message, my first concern was simply this. Lord, is there a passage in the Old Testament that may have informed the way that Jesus taught his disciples that comes to light in this passage? Is there something about the pure in heart that's in this that's already been stated and that Jesus takes up and that Jesus enforces and that Jesus takes to a, a greater and a higher level of understanding because he has come and the story has its fulfillment in him? It's my conviction the answer to that question is yes. And it's my conviction that the likely text that informs this passage, and there's others as well, but I think at least Psalm 24 and verse 4. And again, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 24, and I'm going to read verse 4, and then I'm going to tell you where we're going to go from there. But we'll begin just by reading Psalm 24 and the words of verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. It's purity of heart that's found in this passage. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now what I want to do this morning, having established that there is an Old Testament precedent, I want to explore something of the riches of Psalm 24 with you. So we'll spend some time doing that, looking at Psalm 24. And then after we've done that, I want to endeavor to then expound something of the relevance of Psalm 24 to the Beatitude. What does it all mean in the light of what is stated in the Beatitude about the poor in heart, the pure in heart who will see God? And then I want to then finally explain the importance of it all to you and me as we sit here in Pine Bush this Lord's Day morning. So first of all, something of the riches of the psalm. How many of you find the book of the psalms filled with riches? I think most Christians do. I try to convince people Leviticus also has riches. People don't believe me. And then I say, let's sit down and talk, and maybe we can find the riches that are found in the book of Leviticus. One of the things I tell people, people don't know, the first book that a Jewish person, a Jewish young person, learns in the synagogue is Leviticus, believe it or not. It's Leviticus. No wonder they leave the synagogue at early ages. No, I'm kidding. They don't. But the point of it is, evidently, Jewish people see, place a high regard on that particular book that's central to the whole Pentateuch, the whole five books of Moses. But that's another story. Psalm 24 is one of several Old Testament passages that is termed by modern scholars and students of the word of God they're called entrance psalms you know when you hear psalms titled entrance psalms sometimes you say well why do they call it that I hope that's what you're asking yourself why do they call it that well you see there are psalms that are believed to have had some form of use in the liturgy of the worship of the people of Israel um, when they came to the temple perhaps they were sung or chanted in sort of an antiphonal way 
In other words, you have a leader that makes one statement and then there's the response to the people. We call that responsive readings of the word today. But it's likely that sort of thing happened in the worship of the Old Testament people of God. Certainly some of the Psalms are, 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 are written in such a way that you would, you would think that. You would think that there was some leader, some priest who would then um, come before the people as they've assembled to worship and call out the question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And to that question that the leader or the priest would bellow out before the people, there would be the response of the people, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And so that would place upon the worshiper the question, am I worthy to enter? Remember Jesus said, when you come and you bring your gift, you put it before the altar and you recognize you got a problem with a brother, leave it there. Leave it there. Go get the matter with your brother reconciled first. And then come and bring your offering. God doesn't want you just to come to bring an offering when you've got problems with other people. Get reconciled. Get right. If you came here this morning fighting with your wife tooth and nail in the car, you say, well then, truce, truce. We're going to church. You walk in the building. We hold a truce. And then you leave and you pick up the argument again. In the fight, there's something principally wrong with that. You should not be doing that. You need to be reconciled. I'm not saying don't come to church. I'm saying try to settle whatever the conflicts are before you walk through the door. Because God's concerned that his people come to worship him with clean hands and a pure heart. Can I do that? Well, this is the purpose of an entrance psalm, is to raise such questions as this. You find something similar in Psalm 15. It has a similar pattern. This time it's addressed to God. The worshiper says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Remember, the tabernacle was a tent. It was the place of worship. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. Something like this is also found in Psalm 18, verse 19 in the prayer. And here the prayer is, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. You see, there's other passages that have this similar pattern. We're coming to God's house. We're coming to God's worship. We're meeting with Him. As we approach Him and His space and His house, where He comes to meet with His people, we need to reflect upon our lives. We need to reflect upon the quality of our lives that are required of the worshiper of God that's set forth in these entrance psalms. Now, 20, Psalm 24 gives us a little bit different wrinkle on the whole thing. Because here is... An entrance liturgy that's right in the middle of two other thoughts. Right in the middle. This question doesn't begin the psalm. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? What begins the psalm? The affirmation that the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. 
He's founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. There's a confession of who Yahweh is as God we approach to worship and serve. He's creator of heaven and earth. He's creator of all things. He has a purpose with respect. His creation of you and me. That's to be fulfilled in our worship. We come to the God of creation. We've mucked up the world through our sin. But He's come in His grace and His salvation to sort us out. To make us right. Ultimately to make all things new. That's the God we come to serve and to worship. The God of creation. The God who comes in the grace of His salvation. To needy sinners encouraging us to approach Him. The recognition of who He is. But there's another thing on the other side of the psalm. And that's not just a matter of understanding uh, God's place in terms of His creative activity. It's the recognition that it's this God who also comes and approaches people. Now it's hard to know exactly what the origin of the statement is, but it's the call to lift up your heads. And you think, you say, lift up your heads in a place of worship. What's going to happen? Everyone's going to lift up their heads. But that's not the thing that is most important. It's the fact that as we lift up our heads, the call is to lift up your heads, O ye gates. Well, what's that about? Well, again, in the place of worship on Mount Sinai, there were, on Mount Zion, there were gates. There were gates, first of all, that led into the city. He had opened up the gates for people to walk into the city of Jerusalem. And then when he came to the Temple Mount, there were also gates to come into the outer court. Gates that led into the nearer presence of God in the house of God in his place of worship. And you see, the whole point of the opening of the gates is not so much that we enter, but that God himself enters. Now it may have been they had taken the ark, and they went out, and the ark led them in war against one of their adversaries. They're coming back victorious, and they're looking for the gates to open up, and the ark to come in. But with that, it's the king of glory himself we want to enter in. So this whole whole question, not only of us coming into God's space, but of God himself coming into our space. It's a mutual meeting. We draw near to him, he draws near to us. That's the ultimate picture. I kind of wonder if it's not the background of after the exile, when God's glory had left the temple. You have a picture of it in Ezekiel chapter 8. That the glory of God left in a chariot, with wheels that turned in every direction, and it went out to where Ezekiel was in exile. God left the city for its idolatries and its wickedness and went to his exiled people. He sent his people into exile into Babylon with Ezekiel and others who were at the book, book uh, the, the Kibar River. And God came and met with them. God makes journeys to where his people are. And he went to the exiled people. Uh, and then when they came back, ultimately when Cyrus gave the decree they could come back to their land and rebuild their city in the days of Nehemiah and, and, and Ezra and rebuild the temple. Remember one of the great concerns were that the glory of this new house was not the glory of Cyrus. Solomon's temple. What was the glory of Solomon's temple? God's was the glory of Solomon's temple. Remember when Solomon dedicated the temple? Just like when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, there was the presence of God that descended on the place. And not even Moses could enter into that place where God's presence in the cloud was manifest. God's glory was in that place. And if in the place of exile they've returned and the glory of God has not come back, 
There's a promise in Ezekiel that God's glory will come back, and it does involve gates. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 43, in the visionary temple that Ezekiel speaks about, God returns to his temple. And that's perhaps the hope. Open up, lift up your heads, open up the gates. We desire his presence. We desire his glory that God would once again return and dwell in the midst of his people. Thankfully, you and I don't need to lift up gates. But sometimes we need to lift up our awareness of the one who is declared where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in their midst. How keenly do we make that our awareness that where God's people meet, Jesus says he will come. Where God's people meet, Paul tells us he's made his church to be a habitation of God through the Spirit. We become God's dwelling. We become God's house. The wonderful thing about God's dwelling, God's house in the Old Testament, it wasn't just a place where God dwelt, you know, in some special way, in the in the glory of in the glory uh, cloud or the glory um, uh, presence, the Shekinah, but it was also that He made His house a place of meeting, a place of meeting, where where people met with God. Jesus meets with His people, where two or three are gathered together in His name. Lift up your heads. Saint, lift up your heads, God's people. Jesus has declared himself to be in our midst. Look at the vision of the book of Revelation with the glorified Christ. Where is he? John's in that vision on the Lord's day, and it says that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. And what are the lampstands? The seven churches of Asia Minor. You may not, you might miss church, but Jesus doesn't. He doesn't miss church. He's present in the midst of his gathered people. Remember, I think it was Jacob that said, God is in this place and I didn't know it. God is in this place and I didn't know it. What a shame it is if God's in this place and we don't know it. God's in this place and we don't lift up our heads. God's in this place and we don't acknowledge His presence and rejoice in His presence and benefit from His presence and learn from the reality of a God who's not distant and far away, but a God who is near, who makes His house a place of meeting, where He invites us to draw near to Him and we draw near uh, and He draws near to us. Now the theology of the 24th Psalm is vast, it's deep. Each part is deserving of just amazing uh, time of thought and of concentrated effort to understand things. But the, the simple, simple version of it is simply that there is this double entrance theme. Human worshippers drawing near to the presence of God and the divine king drawing near to his human creatures. And so in the light of that reality, we enter in to his worship. Taking stock of ourselves and what is required of us. Dare we come with impure hands? Dare we come with impure hearts? Now, there's incidents of that occurring in the history of the nation of Israel. And it never had a good outcome. Never had a good outcome when people came to worship God 
and they were not concerned at all with how they lived their lives. Hey, it's Sabbath. Let's go. Let's go to the temple. It's Sabbath. Let's meet for worship. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to go to the solemn meeting. Well, look at Jeremiah chapter seven. Here's what God says about that: people who just trip into His house, trip into His presence, thinking that there's no need to humble themselves before the Lord, no need to repent of their sins, no need to confess their sins, no need to turn away from their ways that are are displeasing. Here you have in in Jeremiah chapter 7 what Jeremiah calls deceptive words. Deceptive words. What are those deceptive words? He says, do not trust in these deceptive words. And the words are the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. What were they doing? They were saying, hey, nothing could happen to us. I mean, we're, we're, we're Israel. We're Jerusalem. We're the temple. That's, that's forever. That's a reality that will never fa- fail, never fade. Don't be so certain. Don't be so certain. The God who entered into covenant with the nation clearly pronounced curses as well as blessings and curses that would come upon the disobedient. And so Jeremiah tells them in verse 5 of chapter 7, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, shed innocent blood in this place. Imagine doing that in this place, in the place of the temple, doing these abominations, doing these horrific things. If you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. You want to draw near to me? I'll let you draw near near to me. But you got to stop oppression. You got to stop injustice. You got to stop going after other gods. He says in verse 8, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal? Murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house. Who shall come before the Lord? Who shall ascend to his mountain? Well, the thieves and the murderers and the adulterers. No, absolutely not. To come and stand before me in this house that's called by my name and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. And then something is said that Jesus quotes when he goes up to the temple in Jerusalem. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? The house of God has been defiled by people who have no concern to honor God, the God of the place, the God of the house, the God who says, I will let you dwell with me in this place. I will meet with you in this place. God says there needs to be clean hands as well as pure hearts. And it stands to reason because he, Psalm 24 begins with that note of creation, doesn't it? The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. He's founded it upon the seas. God's the creator of everything. And when you think about who and what we are as the creations of God, made in the image of God, we were created for both worship and work. Worship and work. We're made to know God in our hearts, so we're made to labor for God with our hands. Clean hands, pure hearts, absolutely essential. Adam was placed in a garden to do what? To tend and to keep the garden. 
to tend to keep the garden with a pure heart and clean hands and then what happened at the end of the day of his labors? Well, Scripture tells, tells us that God walked, he's accustomed to walk with him in the cool of the day. Walked with him in the cool of the day. He knew the refreshing fellowship of the presence of the living God. The man and his wife would enter into God's space, God's presence. The Lord would enter theirs. There would be this mutual entrance of God and man in fellowship and worship and in love and in adoration. And you see, the worship of the tabernacle and the temple was, was designed to be a return to that sort of thing. Again, remember, the, they had this tent and they had these furnishings. You had a basin for washing that was called the sea. You had a golden lampstand that was fashioned like a tree, had stems and cups and almond blossoms. Imagine that. I mean, we think of the Jewish uh, menorah as being like the lampstand of the tabernacle. No, no. It was a tree. It was twisted branches every which way. It was calyxes and flowers. And then you had cherubim that were vo- woven into the veil of the tabernacle. All reminders of things that took place in Eden. Where God was. Man dwelt with God. Now with God coming in the midst of the camp of Israel. In that tabernacle. With God's space being that most holy place. And sections of the tabernacle that were assigned for the priests alone. And they were to be tending and keeping the tabernacle like Adam tended and kept the garden. The worshippers in the outside court coming near to the presence of God with their sacrifices. It was all designed to picture the return of the approach to God that was lost through sin. The return of worshippers to his house. To the work of the priesthood and the sacrifices. Now, a house of meeting is again established. And the question again is, who has the right of approach? Who has the right of entrance? To whom will God in turn approach with his loving, caring, shepherding presence? It's those with clean hands and a pure heart. Those who engage in honoring God in our work and in our worship. You see, that has every relevance to the Beatitudes. Because again, the Beatitudes depict the character of the believer as he exists and carries out his life in the midst of a fallen world. I've tried to point out that these Beatitudes really go from, you might think, the more inward to the outward. It goes to the passive to the active. It goes to the things that we think and feel as we live in a fallen world. What we think about ourselves being coming poor in spirit. Thinking about the world and it's all of its misery because of sin. And we come to sorrow. We come to weep. We become to mourn for the reality of life in a fallen world. And we move into the matter of meekness. And that's when you're provoked to get angry and retaliate and be mean-spirited. And meekness is that which says, no, 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 no. I'm going to act towards God with, with a lack of self-will and towards others with a lack of ill will. And if you really think that that's the negative, that's the thing inward, that's the thing that's our passive reaction to the grace of the gospel in terms of the character that the, God, that the Lord forms in us, we don't stop there. We don't stop in a monastery somewhere. We don't stop just in our own meditations, in our prayer closets. We live in the world. And we're meant to impact the world. 
Jesus is going to go on to say, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And I think that he's moving in that direction, even in his Beatitudes, in the fact that what you have is you have the meekness, this lack of ill will, turned to goodwill in the way that we're merciful to others in a lost world, in a fallen world. We don't just tolerate them, we serve them, we minister to them, we love them, we compassion them. We, we, we were responsive to their needs. We, we look to meet those needs as we are able. That's what mercy requires. But again, it's also the reality that in the midst of the world of sin, God's creating something of beauty to be manifested in the midst of His people who are pure in heart. In the place where everything is just lies and deception, self-interest and self-seeking and self-pleasing, exploitation and oppression of others that predominate, God's raising up a generation of weepers made workers. We weep for a fallen world, but yet we're committed to work in a fallen world that God's kingdom would come, that God's will would be done, His name would be hallowed through our prayers, through our efforts, through our labors. Sorrowers become servants who in their work and their witness show another way, show a better way. The essence of purity of heart, first of all, in in the psalm, it's joined with cleanness of hands. So it's not just the inner life. It's the inner life at work outwardly in the way we respond to others and live to serve others. But we live to serve others in a way of purity of heart. And purity of heart speaks of something that's unmixed with other elements. You want to go get something that's a piece of jewelry with gold? What, do you, what kind of gold do you want? You want gold all mixed up with other kinds of metals? No, you want pure gold, right? Pure gold, unalloyed, nothing else. Gold, 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 100%, as much as you can get. Of 100% gold. Well, it's never 100%, but you try, at least the purity of gold is measured in terms of how unmixed it is. You come into the state of Michigan these days and you see a sign that says Pure Michigan. (laughs) I'm not sure why it's called Pure Michigan. It became a slogan. Maybe it was after Flint's water got so polluted. They decided you've got to do something in the light of the fact that we've polluted the homes of all these people living in Flint, Michigan. What do we do to just get a different image? Let's talk about pure. Let's talk about pure. You want pure water, right? You, you don't want the garbage that entered into the pipes of the reservoirs that came into Flint, Michigan. You want pure water. You want pure H2O. No mixtures. No other pollutants. What is it to have a pure heart? It's to have the impurities removed. A heart that functions as God intended it to function. That's why I read Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep His commandments and statutes. What are we talking about? We're talking about wholehearted devotion. Wholehearted commitment. I love to sing hymns that speak of wholehearted devotion and commitment. But also it hurts. Because even as I sing the words, I realize this is speaking about a reality I know very little of. 
We sang the hymn before Sunday school, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory. I can sing that, foretaste of glory divine. Then to speak of praising my Savior all the day long. Please, don't put a camera on me. I found out I was wired up and I was in the other room and they heard me in here. And I said, thankfully I didn't say anything I shouldn't have said. I'm all wired up and people heard me. Imagine if you had to go around with, you're wired for sound and someone's taking pictures. The end of the day, it's roll the tape. Let's see what we find when you're in the secret place. You know, when you get cut off by a driver and nobody's around, what's, in, what's on your lips then? What's in your heart then? Do you respond in anger? Do you respond, well, Lord, thank you that uh, you know, I'm still driving and I haven't, hit, you know, I deserve, I deserve to be in hell, but I'm here, I'm in the car. Even if it doesn't have air conditioners, it's mine that has. I have a happy heart. I have a happy heart. You've not dealt with me after my sins. You've not rewarded me in accordance with my iniquities. I have nothing to complain about. But yet I complain. Yet I complain. But I long to have a heart that's more pure. I long to have a heart that's more devoted. I I long to have an obedience that's more consistent. That both in my work as well as my worship, the Lord would be honored. It's kind of easy to do what I do on the Lord's Day. Because your eyes are on me. I'm I'm called to perform. You know, wind me up and let me go. Um, I've been doing this for enough years that, you know, you, you can do that, you know. I want Thursday afternoon with no eyes upon me to be able to be in this place and serve the Lord with every bit as much of intensity, every bit as much as wholeheartedness, every bit as much as joy of joy, every bit as much as satisfaction. When the lie is upon me, and all I have to do is parse some Greek verbs. It's not easy. But that's the goal. That's the goal. Purity of heart. Purity of commitment to honor and serve the Lord in every single part of life. Even when I fail miserably, to come to the end of the day and say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. Let me start afresh tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow I'll get it right. It's like, you know, Anne of Green Gables. You said, uh, you know, what she likes about every new day is that uh, it's a new day before her, no mistakes yet. (laughs) No mistakes yet. The mistakes will come, but man, you start a new day, you say, no mistakes. Maybe I'll live up to my aspirations as a Christian. Again, you've got to be realistic about what the Christian life will bring. But you also have to be idealistic of not being content where you are. If you're content where you are and say, oh, well, you know, this next year, I just hope I'm the same as last year. And you're just concerned not to regress. No. It's fine not to regress. I commend you if you don't regress. I know a lot of people that have fallen away from the faith completely. I'm thankful for those that don't regress, that are still walking with the Lord. But we need to do more. We need to progress. We need to move on. We need to live more godly lives. We need to be, uh, understand more the will and ways of God. We need to be pure in our devotion, more wholehearted in our obedience. Psalm writer says, Then I will not be ashamed when I have respect unto all your precepts. Everything God has spoken, everything God has said. We're not, we're not there yet. None of us. None of us are there yet. But uh, that's, the, that's the goal. That's what we pursue, pursue. This purity of heart. And the wonderful thing about this purity of heart that it has as its end, the very end for which we seek, 
as we work and worship every day. Why do we do it? We do it for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. Paul could tell slaves in Rome, oh, I'm sorry, in Colossae and in, in Ephesus, to, 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 to engage in, in their service to their earthly masters, not with eye service as men please. It's not just when the eye people are upon you, but in singleness of heart, serving the Lord. He says you're serving Christ. As you're doing the work of a slave, you're serving Christ. As you're doing the work of a mother, you're serving Christ. As you're doing the work in, in your school, you're serving Christ. It's not just the preacher that serves Christ or the missionary that serves Christ. In your place of employment, in your having your children on your knees, your grandchildren on your knees, and playing with them, you serve Christ. You want to be spreading something of the savor of Jesus to all with whom you come in contact. And so the end of the whole story is the pure in heart will see God. We'll see the God we seek now. And you see, seeing God is not just when we're in His presence. When there's no need for a temple because the Lamb is the temple. Jesus is present in the midst of His people. We'll see Him then, yes, But there is a sense in which the eyes of our heart are enlightened to see him now. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of Moses who endured the afflictions of Egypt because he saw God. He saw God. By faith he beheld the God he worshipped and served. Well, of course, he would also see him in the burning bush and he saw him in other manifestations of the divine presence. But the reality is that God is not far from every one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. And the eyes of our hearts are to be enlightened to see him, to behold him with commitment and unrivaled devotion. And that's the end of the story. But you see, we live in the here and the now, and there's an important relationship to the, what, will, what will be there and then to what is here and now. We'll never be ready for that if we're not looking to see Him now, if we're not looking to pursue Him now, if we're not joyful in finding Him now. And so to bring everything full circle, let me just say a couple, three things in terms of just the application to us each this morning. Is, is that God requires the heart, not just the... The hands, though the hands are certainly related, the heart is essential to biblical Christianity because Christianity is a religion of the heart. Has God possession of your heart? Or has some idol? Has the living God possession of your heart? Or does your own pursuit of power or pleasure or possessions We need to give our hearts to God. Have no other gods before Him. No other gods beside Him. He and He alone is to be the object of our true love and our devotion. The proverb tells us, keep your heart above everything that you keep. What do you look to keep in your life? I know we all want to strangle our, our parents who took our baseball cards and burned them up or threw them away and we see what they're going for today on the open market and say, oh man, why don't they keep it for me? 
they took my Beatles records and said, oh, we don't need these things, and they broke them. And what do you sell them for today? First edition, meet the Beatles. <laughs> what are the things you're looking to keep? What are the heirlooms you're looking to keep? You don't want anybody to throw away. You don't want anybody to destroy. The Proverbs says, keep your heart above everything else that you keep. Your most valuable possession is your heart. The heart that you give to God and the heart that you keep for God and the heart with which you serve the, Lord, the living God. And then the reality of the state of our heart is most clearly known by the activity of the hands. You can never divorce the two from one another. You can't think your heart is good while your hands are filthy. You see that all the time. Somebody commits a vile murder and somebody says, oh yeah, but he was such a good guy at heart. Well, actually, probably not. Oh, yeah, but maybe you need to rethink what was in his heart if he went and committed those horrible th- th- crimes. Oh, God alone knows the heart. But the way in which our hearts are manifest is in what we do. Jesus said it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It's from the heart that proceeds. The whole catalog of sins, he says. It all comes from within, out of the heart of man. We're called to have clean hearts. Clean hands and pure hearts. In fact, James 4 says that in that order, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. Have a single-mindedness of devotion and commitment to God, both within and without. And all that you feel within and all that you do without. Wash yourselves, Isaiah says. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Then he goes on to say, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they're as white as, be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they should be like wool. Again, the Lord alone can cleanse the heart. The Lord alone can save. The Lord alone can justify. The Lord alone can sanctify. And yet, as God is doing His work in us, we're called upon to do our work for Him and out, outwardly. Repentance is of the first order of, report, of importance for clean hands and a pure heart. And then just a final thought is that how much the world needs to see the church emulating these beatitudes or showing forth the reality of these things because the world needs the cleansing to see the, a, a church with clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, that we don't come to this world with, with our motives, but you know, looking to gain something. We, we want to see a big church. We're going to have the coffers full. You know, Paul would say to people, that you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. We weren't in it for our sake. We were in it for your sake. He says, you knew what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He says, you knew that we weren't seeking yours, but you. Not what you had. Not what you could give us. What we could give you. Love needs to be the driving engine of everything the church is and does. And we need to come to the world with pure motives. Not looking to be predators, seeking what we can get, or how we can exploit, or how we can use. They need to see Christians who have no other motive but the love of God and the love of people. Not to build our kingdom, but his kingdom. To come to this world with clean hands and pure hearts, engaged and faithful, love to our God, and service of others. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's unite in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this teaching our Lord Jesus gives us, and we're thankful for the 
fullness of instruction your word supplies to us so that we can make sense of it. Lord, we don't know in and of ourselves just how we should order our ways or how we should live our lives. We thank you that your word gives us light, gives us understanding. And we pray we would grow in a fuller appreciation of all that the scriptures hold forth to us, that we would be a people that truly live out what we claim to be true, that scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Help us to be taught, to be people who are easily taught, easily reproved, easily corrected, easily trained up in the ways that we should go. And so bless the things we've looked at this morning. Make these things to be a reality within our hearts and minds that we would be a people who give our hearts to you, live in purity before a non-looking world that no one could even think to question why we do what we do. That we would be so filled with the love of Christ, so live, so filled with an intent to do good to others. We pray that you'd hear our prayers. We pray that you'd bless your people to these ends as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.